0: Good morning, it's 19 minutes to nine o'clock. This is Money Talk uh, with uh, James Ross. In Your Money Today, Carolyn Wright dives into what you need to know about an asset you may not have even been aware of before Credit Suisse was taken over by UBS. Uh, Good morning, Carolyn.
1: Good morning. In Your Money Today was going to take a deep dive into an aspect of the bond market that many of us were likely unfamiliar with until very recently, 81 bonds. The merger between UBS and Credit Suisse hitting the headlines caused a lot of concern about them. But is the recent issuance of 1 billion US dollars of AT1 bonds by Japan's SMFG bank a sign that confidence is coming back? I'm joined now by Jonathan Crompton, who is disputes and regulatory partner at RPC, who can help explain what you need to know about them. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: So let's kick off with an explainer. What are eighty-one bonds, and who can actually invest in them?
0: Eighty-one bonds um, arose really out of the financial global financial crisis, and um, the idea of eighty-one bonds is that they are bonds that can be converted into shares or equity um, in the event that uh, a bank is struggling. So, effectively, it helps them um, rely on uh, the, helps them meet their capital adequacy requirements. Um, They're bonds so they're debt, they give a coupon of interest. Um, but the idea is that they sit just above shareholders when in the event of uh, an insolvency.
1: Okay, so which is, you know, why we've seen a lot of issues recently. So should the investors in these bonds have been aware of the potential for losses in this situation based on that?
0: I think the Investors in the bonds, uh, as far as I've seen, have been aware of the potential for losses. They weren't necessarily aware of the types of losses and how they would come about. The the coupon that's given, the interest that's given, whether it's 6.25% or 9.75%, is based on the risk. But what happened with Credit Suisse was that the, um, the uh, Swiss regulator, Finmar, uh, wrote down the bonds while still giving a payment to shareholders in the deal where UBS would buy out. And I think that's the concern for 81 bondholders, whether the the structure that was supposed to be in place was turned on its head.
1: Right. So whether what you were expecting happened as it did. OK, so let's get into that and get into what's going on in the way of legal action. What have we already seen? What could we see? And what options do these bondholders have?
0: So far, there's been a lot of talk of legal action. Um, some law firms in particular have been talking openly about raising a group of investors to bring a claim. Um, we have also been approached by, uh, by potential claimants, uh, in particular high net worth individuals. Now, there's a couple of ways that claims could be brought here. One of which is to, um, to challenge the decision in Switzerland. And there's a deadline uh, to challenge that decision coming up at the beginning of May. Another way to challenge what happened is actually through uh, bilateral investment treaties or fair trade agreements and um, in fact that's a way that Asian investors, for example Hong Kong investors, South Korean investors may be an advantage because there may be a bilateral investment treaty that they can rely on to sue the Swiss government whereas that bilateral investment treaty may not have existed for example with the UK.
1: So that's the kind of thing that I imagine you uh, should be taking advice on if if you are caught in this situation let's t- t- there was one aspect that I think we didn 't get early on. Is anybody able to invest in these eighty one bonds it's
0: a it's a very good point and it depends on the place where they 're being sold um, in europe the the eighty one bonds have traditionally been sold to institutional investors, and I break down the market into three segments institutional investors uh, High net worth individuals or or um, individuals with a lot of money and retail and um, institutional investors and high net worth individuals are generally grouped together in hong kong they 're considered professional investors uh, they are able to purchase these uh, these eighty one bonds um, Some countries allow retail uh, allow retail investors to purchase as well. For example, Singapore allowed uh, the purchase of blocks of $200,000 Singapore and above, but they never received a prospectus of somebody wanting to sell to retail. So it depends on the bonds themselves, uh, but it also depends on where they're being sold. In Asia, there's a higher investment appetite, and that's why we're seeing a lot of high net worth individuals that were sold these bonds through private banks.
1: Okay, so let's get back to the the legal action. Are there any precedents that we can look back to uh, to see what might happen here in this situation?
0: The what what happened with um, CS it is very uh, particular, um, but that doesn't mean there's there's a complete kind of minefield of of um, of where there's no precedent at all. Bilateral investment treaties have a framework where there are certain concepts. Um, that have been decided by lots of different bilateral investment treaties. So there is a framework of precedent, but it's not necessarily the same uh, framework of precedent that you might expect in the UK, in in Hong Kong.
1: Okay. And how have... People like regulators have been reacting to this. Could could they prevent such an issue happening again? Are they moving to make any changes ar- around these bonds, or, or 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 do they think that what framework we have already is fine enough?
0: A lot of regulators came out very quickly to distance themselves from what the Swiss regulators did. Um, the Hong Kong. Regulators came out and said uh, and talked about the capital adequacy ratios of banks here to, in, um, to give some confidence to investors that banks were not in a failing situation. Uh, some regulators, such as in Singapore, for example, have come out and said they would not take this approach.
1: OK, so it varies again where you're from. What are the lessons that could be learned from this that could be a long term benefit for the banking industry, do you think, here?
0: The the lessons that come out of this, um, I, I see really as, as certainty and pricing. The financial markets always work on a pricing basis. And if there's a lack of certainty that you'll get your money back, um, that doesn't mean you won't necessarily invest. It just means that you price it appropriately. Um, I, I think... A lot of investors were shocked by this decision. So I, I think there may be steps to get some certainty from regulators that they wouldn't take this approach. And um, there'll definitely be steps to price in that uncertainty. Uh, for example, you talked about the recent uh, 81 bond issuance um, that took place by the Japanese bank. That was. That was a success, a success in that it happened. So uh, the market isn't necessarily moving away from 81 bonds. They'll just want to know that they have certainty in the credit pricing.
1: So it's probably down to rebuilding that investor confidence around them as a product.
0: Yes, and that's really, I think, why a lot of regulators stepped in very quickly to say that they wouldn't adopt the same approach.
1: And they make it clear where they're at. Thank you very much for explaining all of that. It's a complicated situation and I think a lot of us were taken aback going, what on earth is it? So, yeah, thank you, Jonathan Crompton, Disputes and Regulatory Partner at RPC.
0: You're very welcome.